This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberling. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm here with Parisa Noble. Parisa, thanks for being here again today. Hello, thanks for having me. Excited to be here as always. Yes, likewise. Exciting episode today. We've got a couple of great guests uh, today. Uh, later in the show, we're going to have Wayne Holtham, who's the VP of our Asia Pacific office here at Third Stage, and we're going to talk about enterprise asset management uh, later in the show. And before we get to that segment, though, we have another guest that's going to join even before Wayne. Uh, Amy Cooper from Kraft, uh, not the cheese company, but a, a technology company called Kraft uh, that does supply chain solutions for organizations. And so we've got a pretty uh, long segment of questions we're going to ask Amy about supply chain management, some of the trends that she's seeing in the marketplace, as well as some of the challenges that a lot of organizations are facing with their supply chains in, in the here in the 2020s. So before we get to that, though, before we... Uh, get to the interview with Amy and, and into the deeper discussion about supply chain management. I know, Parisa, you, you had some observations and thoughts around the whole concept of supply chains and supply chain disruption and supply chain management here in 2021. What are some of the things you're finding? Yeah, well, it's it's now more of a prominent part of the conversation than I think it ever has been before, just because We've seen so many blockages in the past year, um, given the pandemic, given multiple things, mostly because of the pandemic. But it's interesting to see how each industry is trickling into other industries. So I, I found a list of kind of the top 10 items that you don't really think about that are now facing shortages. And there's some, it's a pretty broad range. I got to say, we have everything from like, lumber to chicken wings. So I thought, hey, let's run through each one of these so that we can, you know, count our blessings and say thank you that I have chicken wings today because <laughs> it's it's apparently becoming more and more um, in demand, even though the supply is not necessarily keeping up. So I'll start with with number one. Apparently, there is a huge chlorine shortage, and this this was at the top of the list of an article that I saw. Um, and you know, granted, all of these shortages are global, but here in the U.S., we have a we have a large plant that produces chlorine and pool and spa um, treatment products, and it caught on fire in August, and that's a big reason why there is a shortage this summer, and they're actually projecting the cost of chlorine to increase up to 58% than it has before. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> that is crazy. Who knew that chlorine would be uh, have a supply chain disruption like that? I, that's not the first thing that would come to mind or one of the first things, but interesting that it's affected even the chlorine industry. I know, right? I was shocked to see that at the top of the list because there's so many other things. But the second one makes sense, gasoline. Um, you know, especially here in America, they're 
was the cyber attack on the colonial pipeline, as we talked about in our last episode. Um, but even before that, so it sounds like just in general, people were not driving as much during the pandemic. So um, the need for gasoline dwindled at the beginning. And then the drivers, I mean, you know, I imagine there's a handful of different ways that gasoline is delivered, but drivers, you know, that are driving the big semi trucks uh, with gasoline, they, they left the industry because there wasn't a need for it. So that on top of the cyber attack mixed right now, we're seeing an increase in gas prices and there's a shortage in gasoline. So there's that. Um, you have rental cars, the rental car industry. Again, people weren't traveling in uh, 2020 as much and their need for rental cars, you know, went down, especially, I mean, if you're not driving your own car, you're probably not going to go rent a car um, and drive that car. So these, these rental car companies sold a third of their fleet. And then now when people are traveling again, it's about $300 a day USD to rent a car in some places a day, just because there's a shortage in rental cars. And a shortage in cars overall. I was reading recently how car lots for new inventory is, are completely scarce. Just they can't produce fast enough. And part of it is the, the chip shortage. I know you mentioned it in one of the earlier episodes of this show about the chips, the certain types of chips for like uh, sensors on the cars or uh, cameras when you're reversing the car, whatever the case may be. There's a shortage on those and that's making it impossible for them to finish, completely finish the cars in the, in the production lines. It's just crazy because you think about it and this chip conversation, I know you and Amy talk about it, but a lot of it comes down to supply increasing in all the things that those chips are used for because it's used from things like, you know, a PlayStation, it's used in your refrigerator, it's used in, you know, almost, I'm not, I'm not going to say everything, but there's a lot of different products that use this chip. So the spike in demand um, kind of came out of left field, but also some of these uh, companies, these car companies were thinking, you know, maybe we aren't going to be selling as many cars. We don't need to, you know, put in the forecasting side of it. And they got the forecasting wrong. So, I mean, there's just so many things that can happen. Like, yes, of course, COVID came in and completely threw everything for a loop, but are companies forecasting correctly? Are they, you know, able to recognize the trends that would say, oh, there's going to be a spike in this product or is it totally random, you know? But yeah, to your point, the chips, it's it's a reason why there was a shortage in 2020 for cars, which is probably why these rental car companies sold off a lot of their inventory to make extra cash. And then now they're finding themselves in a bind. I wonder if people are, are paying that 300 a day or if they're still in a bind. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. We, my uh, wife and family and I are, are going on vacation here in a couple of weeks and we uh, looked at rental cars and it was actually $300 a day. Uh, was we're, it? We're going, and we thought about it and then we thought about, well, maybe we just rent a car for a couple of days, but we decided we're just not going to rent a car <laughs> when we go there. Interesting. So yeah, you know, way first hand. that's way too expensive for a couple of days. You're paying $600. That's yeah. too much, too much. Yeah. I'll walk. <laughs> exactly. That's where, that's kind of where we landed on it. Rent a bike or something. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the next one on the list was chicken wings. And this one, you know, struck a chord with me because chicken wings, what wow. are we going to do? 
without chicken wings, right? But this one, apparently, according to this article, uh, Texas, for example, ha and the surrounding states, they're big in chicken production, I guess. And there was a huge storm that hit Texas earlier this year and it halted a lot of per, uh, production. And I don't know if, you know, maybe some of the chickens didn't make it or what happened, but that was their reasoning of what, why there is a chicken shortage is a spike in people wanting comfort food and eating chicken wings and a storm hitting the main areas that chicken is being um, farmed, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> you care so it's just chicken wings though. It's not chicken breast or legs or anything. It's just the wing. Is that it can't be. I mean, if there's chickens, there's chicken wings, right? So I imagine it's all it's all chicken, right? Yeah. Rest, everything. But this article is just talking about chicken wings. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. I know. And then to piggyback off that, hot dogs and bacon, because people are outside grilling, and there is a spike in demand for hot dogs, and they weren't ready for it. So now there's a spotty supply situation going on. Hmm. I, I know <laughs> that's interesting the hot dog thing is interesting and in grilling outside because it's like you know you wonder you know is that just because of covid or is that is the sort of demand you might expect this time of year for at least for the northern hemisphere of, of the world where it's getting warmer and people are starting to, to grill more but, right uh, yeah that's i mean i think i would have to say probably to your point the first one because covid pushed everybody outside. I mean, the comfort zone is now outside. So if people are outside more and they're grilling out, that's how they're getting together with their friends and family yeah. more than they have in the past. I don't know if you're in the hot dog industry, would you be able to, you know, foresee that coming so you can forecast correctly? Maybe it's another forecasting problem. Yeah, so, exactly. Um, the next one's kind of, uh, you know, it makes sense and it's a little heavier, but oxygen. I mean, with COVID-19, the hospitals w were using a lot of their oxygen and now there's actually an oxygen shortage. And uh, the World Health Organization is actually pouring, I think it was like $6 billion into that industry to help get it back up and going and, and meet the demand needs for it. So that one, it makes sense. It's uh, something that is pivotal, especially right now. So hopefully that one bounces back soon. Yeah. So, um, and then to piggyback off of that one, blood. There's been a low donor turnout due to the pandemic, and there's a shortage in blood supply. Um, you know, those two things, when it comes to your health, you know, and I guess food kind of depending on the food, <laughs> that's when things can get scary on a shortage. So, you know, those two things are kind of kind of hard to to grasp. Um, and then the other one was what we just talked about was cars, new cars, the chip shortage. Um, and it was because of faulty forecasting and an increased demand that a lot of these companies didn't see. And then the last one was lumber. And lumber is interesting because it's used across so many different industries that, you know, not only is the cost of lumber going up, but it trickles into the real estate world and new single family homes, at least in the US, are thirty-five thousand, almost thirty-six thousand dollars higher um, than the average that they were at because the cost of lumber has gone up so much. Wow. Because of the shortage. Yeah. Interesting stuff, right? That's super interesting. And I think raw materials in general, you know, not just lumber but um, steel 
you mentioned chips, you know, being a raw material for a lot of uh, organizations or, or an input into a lot of manufacturing organizations. It seems like just from what we're seeing from clients, raw materials as a generalization are in high demand and short supply. So right. I think it goes even beyond the lumber piece of it. Oh, it does. I, I know aluminum is on a shortage also. Um, and, you know, when I was doing research into aluminum, a lot of what I got was it's because of the high consumption of beer <laughs> and, right. and people drinking beer cans. And they, you know, these breweries can't have people or couldn't at least have people in their brewery. So they're canning all their beer. I don't know. Do you prefer beer in a can or beer in a bottle, Eric? Well, I, I prefer uh, I prefer draft out of a tap. But if I had to choose beer or uh, aluminum or bottle versus can, I'd, I'd go with bottle for sure. If it's a can, I'd pour it into a glass probably, but something about a bottle. I don't know. It just feels, it's easier to hold and I don't know, easier to drink from, in my opinion. I agree. It tastes better. It does taste better. They say it doesn't, it, that there's no difference, but it, there is. It tastes better. <laughs> it could just be psychological. I, I have no idea. But probably. to me, it tastes better. <laughs> probably. But it's interesting to see all of the, the different reasons that trickle into each of these shortages. You know, of course, COVID was kind of a catalyst that pushed a lot of these supply chain issues, but I mean, you're, you're seeing things from a fire, um, all the way to a cyber attack, to a storm. Um, you know, a lot of, um, I think another one was shipping containers and it's because, um, there's, I think it was because a lot of these containers are made in China. Um, and there's just been an increase in demand and certain things that apparently use those containers and there's not enough. Um, it's just a supply and demand thing. Um, so it's, you know, I think that kind of translates into, do we make containers close to home or are we utilizing vendors overseas? So there's just so many different factors that could play into a supply chain blockage that, that sparked the question in my mind, can, can a supply chain management software help you anticipate at least some of these blockages? Or do you think that that data could help provide some insights, for example, in demand, if it's if it's tracking trends in the demand, or what are your thoughts on that? Can a SCM software help you mitigate supply chain blockage? Yeah, it, it can to some degree. I mean, there's certain things you can't predict, like a pandemic, say, for example. I, I don't think any, even the best supply chain management technology out there could have anticipated that. But I think what the pandemic and the after effect of the pandemic did is it exposed a lot of weaknesses in people's supply chains, whether it's because they were overly dependent on production outside of their home country. Um, and, and in some cases, by the way, a, a lot of countries or a lot of companies don't have a lot of choices. You know, they have to look outside of their, their own country for certain products like chips. Chips is a good example. Not many countries can provide the chips that are in short supply right now. And I know, you know, here in the United States where we're based, for example, there's initiatives to try and incentivize more companies to start producing chips in the U.S. so that we don't have run into these global supply chain issues. So I think that's that's part of it. And the other thing is, uh, you know, the other part of it is the the vendor diversification, you know, making sure that you have plan A, plan B, plan C. If, if vendor A can't get you what you need, who's vendor B, who's vendor C? And do you already have, you know, pre-negotiated rates with those vendors? And do you have a good relationship with those vendors? And can you anticipate when you might need to use those vendors before you actually need to? So those sorts of things, supply chain management systems can help with, but you also need sort of a behavioral mindset shift to go along with that and the way you think about your supply chain. So it's a, 
you know, a technology process and people issue uh, for sure. And the other part of it too, that we didn't really talk about, but I think it contributes to a lot of these uh, supply chain issues we're seeing in the market. And we're hearing this a ton from our clients, especially, especially in the U.S. I don't know that we're hearing it as much in other, uh, from clients in other parts of the world, but in the United States, I know there's, there's a, ironically a labor shortage for a lot of skilled labor and uh, people that might be, for example, driving trucks or working on a manufacturing shop floor or working in a warehouse. And it sounds strange saying that because unemployment is still fairly high uh, in the U.S., but yet companies can't find people. And, and, you know, clients we talk to, a lot of the speculation is, is because of the higher, you know, government benefits that are being offered by people for being unemployed, that there's not as much of an incentive for people to go back to work now that, you know, these job openings are, are opening up more. So I think when you add the labor factor to the mix too, in addition to the materials and the, the overall supply chain, then you add the labor piece of the supply chain that's also strained. All that stuff is creating a, a bit of a perfect storm here uh, in this world that we're living in right now. Right. It's so interesting to see those unemployment rates and, um, you know, I think it's like a record job opening rate too, just across the board. Um, that reminds me, I, I think it was the governor of Oklahoma is implementing something where the, he's just incentivizing people to go back to work. So you get, you know, if you find a job, you get a thousand dollars or something like that. So some got to find a way to incentivize people to get back to work so that we can kind of close that gap and help these supply chain shortages. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, and they, they've got a, a couple options, you know, they can either increase capacity in the supply chains or they're going to have to raise prices, which, you know, either way, I think that that has an impact on inflation and consumer prices and things of that nature. So I'd be curious to see how, how it pans out. But to your point, yeah, technology and transforming supply chains is critical. And I think it's a super cool area right now. And it's so top of mind for a lot of organizations who maybe were limping along okay with the supply chains they had and the the processes and procedures they had in place. But now they're realizing, hey, we, we kind of got caught flat-footed here and we need to really optimize a supply chain to avoid these sorts of problems to the extent we can in the future and, and sort of open up more of that capacity. Right. And it's so interesting to hear what Kraft does because they're helping their clients kind of pick up on these different data points and build a story out. I mean, she was she, in your conversation. I'm excited for us to get to that, but in the conversation, it sounds like they're collecting all these different data points from, you know, traffic on a website to, you know, I don't know, different consumer behavior and, and different data points that build a story that could tell you what your supply chain is going to do. So you can kind of be proactive rather than reactive, which I think a lot of a lot of companies could have used that in 2020. Although I don't know if they would have been able to predict a pandemic, like you said, but still probably would have been helpful. <laughs> yeah. You might as well have your supply chain as optimized and as healthy as you can get it. And to the extent you, you can manage the things that you can control and anticipate, you'll be able to, um, you can't, you know, you don't want to just assume that, well, we can't do anything about it anyway. So let's just see what happens. You want to make sure you're at least you, you got an infrastructure in place to be able to adjust. If you, if you, if you miss it or you're off in, you know, in terms of how you predict things are going to go, at least you, you know, you've got a supply chain that's flexible and adaptable to whatever might happen in the future. And that's a big part of what we'll talk about here in this interview with, with Amy from, from Kraft and, and some of the different technologies that are out there. I think a lot of times organizations, when they think about supply chain management software, they think about, 
you know, basic procurement and just setting up item masters and vendor masters in a system and, you know, tracking products throughout the supply chain. But to your point, what we'll talk about in this interview is how there's technology out there, including the, the technology that she represents or works for, which is a, a sort of a um, augmentation, if you will, or an add-on to traditional supply chain or even ERP software, where it's meant to help you manage and anticipate supply chain issues better uh, in conjunction with, with traditional supply chain software. So I, I think that's the key is to really look at all the different data points and understand what's happening holistically through your entire supply chain. So that, that'll be a good conversation to get to here in a second. Yeah, I'm excited. All right, without, let's go ahead and get to our interview with Amy from Kraft. We'll talk more about supply chain management trends right after we take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. I'm here with Parisa Noble, and I'm excited for our first guest of the show today, which is Amy Cooper from a technology provider called Kraft. And Kraft provides supply chain solutions that are, I'd call them non-traditional supply chain management types of solutions. It's not your typical supply chain management technology. It's meant to augment supply chain and ERP types of technologies with other data points and information to better manage your supply chain and anticipate some of the challenges that we were just talking about in the, uh, the first segment here. So with that all being said, uh, Amy, welcome to the show today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to be here. I'm far from an expert, Eric, but I'll, I'll try to answer some questions and share what we're hearing in the space and um, with different customers all around the world. Great. Well, I'm guessing you're you're more of an expert than 99% of us on the, the live stream here today. So it's, it's all relative. people all over the world here. And so I think this is a supply chain management is something that is a universal global topic. And maybe before we jump into some of the questions that I have for you, and, and certainly audience, if you have questions, please drop it in the chat. I'm watching all the platforms here. Uh, while Amy's talking, I'll be kind of scrolling around between LinkedIn and YouTube and Crowdcast, just to keep an eye on what, what people are asking. But in the meantime, before we get to those questions, Amy, just maybe talk a little bit about your background. How did you, how did you get into supply chain management? And then I'm gonna ask you about craft here in a second too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I, it's funny. So I'm in enterprise sales at Kraft and I, like many people who wound up in sales, uh, was graduating college. I had no idea where I was going to go, what I was going to do. And I was just taking interviews everywhere. Um, and so after a series of interviews, I, um, I landed at Dun & Bradstreet selling risk supply chain and sales and marketing solutions to uh, enterprise customers there. And 
almost immediately, I really gravitated toward the supply chain use case. Um, I think, you know, there were a few reasons for that. But at the time, um, DMB was just releasing their supplier evaluation risk scores. So it was really hot in the marketplace. Everyone was really excited to have a score around supply chain, not just a credit score. Um, and so I really gravitated toward that because of, you know, the, the new scores and things, but also the conversations that I was having with customers, every single business was completely different. It was just fascinating to me how the same department, if you will, um, could be so vastly different. And so it was just really exciting and fun to be able to be having these different conversations. Um, and so I was there for just about six years. Um, was then recruited by a former manager to join um, a company called Infogroup, which is now Data Axle. And so they are a marketing database company. And so I was intrigued by that um, because, you know, it was still B2B, but then there was a big B2C component. And I haven't hadn't done B2C data. I hadn't done marketing database um, solutions. And so that was an exciting challenge for me. And I loved it. Um, but in the back of my mind, I kind of missed that supply chain discussion. And so when Gartner was launching their supply chain business, um, I joined them um, and I worked there for um, a few years helping, you know, essentially I was focusing on pharma, healthcare, retail and um, media and entertainment, um, bringing in the, the the Gartner executive partners and helping solve some real supply chain challenges. And I absolutely loved that role. Um, and then I had had kids. And so I took a little bit of time off while um, while my children were, were babies. And last summer, um, a former colleague of mine who is now running sales here at Kraft reached out to me and just said, um, you've got to come see what we're doing here. This is just incredible in terms of, um, you know, really disrupting the data supply chain, the way organizations consume data, but also how they leverage that data to manage supplier risk and be proactive instead of reactive. And so it's, I've, I've been here um, since January and even just in these six months, the changes it has been um, really, really astronomical and exciting. And we're solving some really great challenges for our customers. And so it's just, it's a pleasure to be here and be back in the supply chain world. Yeah, you kind of feel like that's where you belong. Huh? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. I try and have these conversations with my family and my friends and they just don't get it. So this is so fun for me to be able to have these these chats with you guys and um, hear questions coming in from, from uh, from the audience. So it's, it's great. Great. Well, before we get to those questions, maybe uh, that's helpful to hear a little bit about your journey and how, how you ended up where you are now. Tell us a little bit about mm -hmm. Kraft. What, what is the solution? What does it do? How does it fit into supply chain management? Yeah, absolutely. So um, at the, at the simplest level, so Kraft is an enterprise intelligence company. And what we're doing is aggregating both traditional and alternative data sources. And from a supply chain perspective, what, is, what does that mean? We're helping our customers build a resilient supply chain and use leading indicators of risk to proactively mitigate it. So traditionally, risk has been something that um, customer, you know, there was very siloed data sources. And I know we'll get into this a little bit more down the road, but um, Kraft's data is allowing our customers to really 
um, look at alternative data points that are leading indicators of, of things going on and really helping them excel at all stages of the supplier lifecycle, whether that be discovery, evaluation, or ongoing monitoring. Um, and so, um, you know, so we are working with um, global organizations, a, a large chunk of the Fortune 500, um, the Department of Defense, we have clients all over the world, um, and we're really driving real results from, um, you know, leveraging best in class data and technology to make better decisions and then to reduce the time to that decision. Right, great. Yeah, yeah, that's a very timely, it seems like a very timely product. You guys are riding an interesting wave right now where that, that seems to be much needed in the space. You know, it's funny you say that. So when the company was founded six years ago, um, it's kind of a funny story. So our, uh, our CEO and founder was working in VC at the time. And he had, I think the number is something like 12 or 14 different tabs open on his computer researching a business. And he had this light bulb moment. He was like, this is madness. Like why in this day and age with the technology the way it is and with um, with data the way it is, why can I not just go to one place and get everything at once? And so that was kind of the light bulb of like, I'm going to build kind of like a Zillow of business information. I'm everything in one place. And so we set out to build this company. And, um, you know, so he, they build this intelligence platform capable of, you know, gathering vast amounts of diverse data from different sources and bringing it into one easy to use interface. And at that time, they didn't quite know where it was going to fit, right? It could go to sales and marketing, it could go to credit and finance, it could go to market intelligence, it could go to mergers and acquisitions. There's a lot of different places within an organization this data can fit. And very quickly, this supply chain use case started percolating up because of all of the disruptions that were happening and, and the need to better understand your suppliers. And so um, about two years ago, the Department of Defense came to Kraft and said, we've been using your data. Um, now we want to integrate it into our systems. And so that was kind of the um, the launch point from which we've said, okay, we're going to take this time right now because supply chain is so critical um, and we have something that no one else is doing to support our cu these customers within supply chain. Um, we're we're going to focus on that. So um, our you know our data team who's sourcing new da new data partners, our product team who's continuing to evolve the product based on customer feedback. We're really focused on supply chain. Although there are we do have many customers that use us for market intelligence or sales and marketing or merger you know M and A activity research and stuff like that. That's great. So I guess, you know, in this experience you have leading up to and including your, your time here at Kraft and what you're seeing in the market, what are some of the um, what are some of the ways that you've seen global supply chains evolve in, in more recent years? That's a great question. <laughs> How much time do we have? <laughs> um, <laughs> so I will preface the answer to that. Um, and say a lot of this, I think, has been percolating for some time. Um, there were indicators that these things were going to be changing. And then I think once COVID hit, it turned these like little brush fires into a raging wildfire. And it really forced customers to, to start to reevaluate how they're going to manage their supply chain. Um, I think... One of the biggest changes over the last few years um, is 
supply chain now has a seat at the table with the CEO. And I think for a long time, supply chain was just there. The business knew it was important. It was a foundation, but it got products from A to B and it manufactured and things were sold and stored, but it was working and they were making money. And there wasn't a huge need to include the supply chain teams in the strategy sessions and the, the long-term planning. And so now that's changed. I think um, in the past 18 months, businesses have really started to see how critical the supply chain is um, and understand what supply chain risk means. Um, and so now um, the supply chain and procurement executives are being brought to the table to really dig into the business and make a plan for how do we handle this down the road? What are we going to do next time something like this happens? Yeah. So that's the first. Um, I think the second way there's been a big shift is um, in this in the sense of um, for a long time, supply chains had a, um, a process and a strategy that was very lean. And it was based on demand forecasts and they bought materials based on what they were going to produce and the warehousing space was only what they were going to need. Um, and they only produced enough product for what was the, for the consumer demand. And um, it was, the margins were very, very thin and it was good, or excuse me, margins were big and, um, you know, and everything worked and there wasn't, um, there wasn't a lot of room for error. Um, and so what COVID has exposed really is that, yes, while there can be great planning, great demand and forecasting, and, and you, can, you can try and manage it, um, you really need to have a backup plan. And you need to understand, you need to be watching your suppliers. You need to know um, what's changing, when it changes, right? You can't find out a month later. You need to know the day of or the next day that something big has happened. Um, you need to be prepared and have a contingency plan. So, um, you know, it's funny, one of the clients that we're speaking to is a, a, one, a their big pharma company and they have, um, they've made the decision that they're not willing to take the risk. And so they're actually, um, they're, stocking three years of inventory and three years of materials because they don't want to risk in not being able to get something they need to make one of their um, critical products. Um, another aerospace and defense client of ours has decided they're going to start. Um, they've, they've implemented a new policy where they have all of their um, key suppliers within 12, 12 hours of their manufacturing sites because they don't want to risk not being able to get the product. And so I think businesses now are willing to spend a little bit more money for that resiliency to be able to have that plan in place so that um, so that they're not caught in a situation like we've seen with the, you know, with the personal equipment and some of the other things we've seen, toilet paper, all of these things, when the, when the, when the forecast doesn't line up, companies are being caught. And so they're, they're being smarter and they're spending some more money to be able to manage that. Um, I think, you know, there, I, you know, I have to mention diversity and sustainability as a huge, huge initiative right now. Every single customer we are talking to has massive diversity and sustainability goals. Um, and it's kind of two prong. It's, it's for themselves as a company to be, um, a, 
um, an inclusive and valuable, you know, member of the business community and to be able to create those um, in inclusive places for their own employees. Um, but also within the supply chain perspective, they are asking their suppliers to um, report these things. They have initiatives where they want to spend money with diverse suppliers. I know during COVID, one of our customers um, was actually supporting some of their small diverse suppliers because they, they knew that they were not going to be able to make it through the pandemic without the help of these large organizations. Um, so diversity and sustainability is is huge right now um, as a cybersecurity. I mean, we all saw the news this week about Colonial Pipeline, um, you know, tracking cybersecurity um, of yourself and your suppliers is something um, that can't be ignored anymore. Um, we've been, you know, there's been kind of whispers about it in the news for the past few years of like, you know, our, the U.S.'s cyber infrastructure is, it, it, you know, is at risk, and we have to be careful. And but now, um, these cyber criminals are targeting the supply chain. I think attacks were up forty-two percent in Q1 of this year. So it's it's not going away, um, and it's the, the attacks are just getting more complex. So really, um, understanding where the vulnerable those vulnerabilities lie within your supply base. Um, and, and tracking that and understanding it and having a contingency plan if something happens, um, like we saw this week. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's interesting how when supply chain management really started to take off or get traction, like in the 90s, when, when global supply chains started to proliferate, when you start talking about outsourcing and, and you know, uh, contract manufacturing in other parts of the world and whatnot, at least for, for U.S. based companies. Uh, it seemed like a lot of the focus was on cost. You know, how do we drive mm -hmm. cost efficiencies and drive down our total, mm -hmm. the, the cost of our supply chain? But now you have so much more to worry right. about. It's not just cost. You've got, you know, you mentioned yeah. the reliability of your supply chain, the sustainability, the diversity, all that stuff now. Mm -hmm. it, you have to kind of balance and prioritize, you know, what's most mm -hmm. important to you as an organization. And that's, you bring up a great point because really what it comes down to is, um, as an organization building out um, what are your priorities and what is your risk threshold, right? Um, different organizations, some might just say, you know what, we're gonna continue with the, the lean strategy and if we get hit, we get hit. Um, we're seeing a lot of customers adjust that strategy to be a little bit more resilient. Um, but the key is really just for each organization to figure out what that threshold is for them and then let's put a plan in place to make sure we're giving you the data that you need to be able to execute on that plan and make sure that we're, we're keeping you up to date on things changing there so that you're not caught um, caught off guard and you're able to be proactive um, and make adjustments and pivot before the disruption occurs. Yeah. Yeah. And, and anticipating what could disrupt the, the supply chain. And what are some examples? I, I know, you know, Kraft as a company and the, and the solution itself really, you know, part of what it does from what I understand is, is track and predict where there could be problems, whether it's mm -hmm. weather related or geopolitical, or I don't know if it could predict pandemics or not, or what, what sort of impact yeah. a pandemic would have <laughs> predict that. But what, right. how does that work or how does the solution um, in general help, help do accomplish some of those things and some of those balancing that, uh, a lot of organizations are trying to do with their supply chains. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's three um, 
big differentiators with craft, right? Versus what's out there in the marketplace. So the first is the depth and the accuracy of our data. So we are collecting over 350 data points on a company. Um, so everything from traditional sources like financials and um, firmographic information and their operations, what do they do? Um, you know, what do, what do they sell? What do they manufacture? But then we're bringing in um, a lot of additional data sources, things like cybersecurity scores, um, diversity certification data, um, human capital, employee sentiment, um, website visits, social media engagement, um, things like sustainability scores, um, data breaches, all of these things, because at the end of the day, what, what we're trying to do is give our customers um, a 360 degree holistic view of a company. And so then how does that help them manage their risk? There's a lot of these different alternative sources that traditionally haven't been leveraged as an indicator of risk, but we know they are. So for instance, if within an organization, if there's consistent turnover at the executive levels, that's an indicator that there's something going on. Um, if you're evaluating um, an, you know, an up and coming startup or a, a new smaller business that you think is really taking off and you're about, you, you think you're, you want to do business with them, if you look at their website visits, the traffic should be trending higher. If they're doing really well and they're doing what they're saying they're, they, they're doing, that, that trend line should be going up. If it's not, are they really gaining that much traction in the marketplace? Um, things around, you know, the cybersecurity scores we have, if someone has a score of an F, they have a 7.7 X, uh, you know, 7.7 X times, um, uh, um, excuse me, uh, probability of a data breach, right? So when we're talking about data breaches, you want to, you want to understand within my supply chain, particularly in businesses where there's sensitive consumer data, credit cards, social security numbers, you want to make sure that your suppliers are secure because if they're breached, it can then flow to you depending on how that, that attack has been orchestrated. And so the tool um, that, you know, the, the craft offering is really bringing all of these data points together in one place. And then we highlight where we see potential risk on a dashboard, whether it's by um, cybersecurity or ESG or, or, you know, those things can be customized depending on the client. But um, so we're highlighting where we see where we see risk. Um, and then we're giving real time alerts to changes within the data on companies that are that our customers have chosen to track. And so um, through those two components and then having it all in one place where the entire organization is able to look at that same, same data set, right? So uh, what we hear from a lot of customers is they just have this data and platform fatigue. They're sick of logging into 20 different systems to get information and then it's inconsistent information. And then there's different people pulling the information and it's just this inefficient mess of data. And then no one really has the answers they're looking for. So what we're, what we're doing at Craft is we're consolidating everything into one place and um, giving our customers the information that they need to make these decisions around risk um, and then reducing their, their time to a decision and time to action. Hmm. Yeah, it's, that's super interesting because I think most of the time when you analyze a supply chain historically, and when I say we, I mean, I, I, my team, other consultants in, in the space, you know, when we've analyzed supply chains, typically you're looking at the flow of goods, you're looking at the cost structure, 
you know, you're looking at lead times and things like that. Those, and that's all important stuff, but you're, you're sort of getting into the guts of the organization and you're, you're sort of peeling back the onion to get to the root cause of what could cause risk, you know, with financial instability or marketplace, you know, market share loss or uh, unhappy employees, you know, things like that, that that don't show up in a flow chart showing what your supply chain is doing. Super interesting. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. That's exactly it. So if you think about supply chain management, right? I mean, that's a huge term. And there are dozens of different pieces of technology and software that fit into that. So logistics and and planning and forecasting and analytics and spend management and shipping and invoice processing, and I could go on and on. Um, And all of that is critical to the infrastructure of the supply chain organization and how you move goods from A to B and how you you run your business. Um, So where CraftSits is really at the foundation of that pyramid, right? We are that data foundation. And, you know, we are focused on building that best in class database. So uh, many of our customers will say, this is fantastic. I could really use this type of data. Would you mind, you know, would you go out and get it? And because of the size of craft and the economies of scale and all of the customers and, and businesses that we do touch, we are able to go out and source that at a much um, you know, at a much better rate than what our customers could do if they went out to buy it themselves. And so we've we've really become this repository so you know we partnered with dmb so if you have a dmb subscription you can pull that data in so you can view it all together in one spot with the craft data Um, we also have a very easy to use api so we do have many customers that bring our data into their system so into their um you know sap and oracle and and ariba and the, the different tools that they're using and then they run their analytics based on our data through that tool. Um, So we're very flexible in how we engage with our customers. Really what we wanna do though, is be that that foundational layer of data so that you understand who these businesses are and you understand when they change. Um, You know, from a discovery perspective, um, you know, what we hear a lot of the time is, it's hard to find new diverse suppliers, for instance. All these businesses have these huge diverse diversity spend goals and they can't get to who makes this little glass vial that's a diverse supplier. And so we're, we're offering that up very easily within a few clicks. You can see, you know, within the United States, here's glass vial manufacturers that are that have a diverse certification. And then you can go out and continue your due diligence. So um 
you know, there's also something to be said for objective third party information. Um, hmm. You know, from a uh, from a traditional standpoint, how risk management has been done within supply chain has has generally been, you know, at onboarding a supplier, a supplier comes in, um, you know, the the company will pull a DMB report, they'll get the supplier survey, they'll, the supplier will send in some information, and then they'll file it away. And in 18 or 24 months, they bring it back in, and then you recertify and they do it all again. The problem with that is, A, um, we know just from analytics and, and um, past experience that um, these suppliers are getting hundreds of these surveys all the time. So they're rushing through it. They're just trying to get it off their desk. Um, they're also painting themselves in a better light, right? Is someone going to tell you like, oh, I, I don't really have the capability to do this order. They're just good. They're going to tell you what you want to hear. Right. So what we're starting to see is um, customers using our scores to um, reduce the number of that type of work they have to do. So depending on the scores, they have business rules around when they're going to send the surveys, when they're going to recertify, and then they use our monitoring so they know if there's anything major, major changing. Um, so it's really, it's just, a, it's changing the workflow away from a lot of this manual work to leveraging data and technology that's available today to make these teams more efficient and to um, and to help them get to an answer quicker. We always say we reduce your time to a decision. Like we we want to empower our customers and enable them to reduce that time so that then they can move on to, to being, you know, thought leaders within their organization and really changing things and, and, and moving on to, to other things that are important to them rather than spending four hours researching a business, like let it do that in 10 minutes with craft and then move on, you know? Right. Yeah. Do your, do your real job. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we literally we work with one. Um, it, it's a, a top three telecom. I'm, it's it's not in our contract that we can say their name, but um, they did an audit before and after Kraft. They have forty analysts, and before Kraft, it took them like three and a half hours to put together the profile that they had to put together for their auditing purposes. After Kraft, they do it in seven minutes. So across forty mm -hmm. people, that time savings it's enormous, and it seems so simple but it's really making a, a big impact. So we're really, really proud of what we're doing and the, and the, the data team and the product team and how we're building it out to really um, enable our customers to, to really um, drive some huge results. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. you know, it's such a, a different technology too, and, and just a different way of looking at supply chains. And, you know, from our perspective at third stage, most of our work with technology providers is, sort of your traditional ERP providers, and then also your traditional supply chain management providers, the standalone, mm -hmm. you know, best of breed, mm -hmm. you know, the Rebus of the world or I mean, right. associates, whatever, whatever it may be. But um, I guess, you know, my, my perspective is that a lot of those systems are focused on automation, some data transparency and just general workflow, but not getting to the things you're talking about as mm -hmm. far as, you know, yeah. getting underneath, you know, getting underneath the surface mm -hmm. of what, what's going on with your supply chain, where the risks are, but how, how have you seen in general, how have you seen technology impact supply chain management in, in recent years? You mentioned, you know, SAP Oracle, Ariba, yeah. obviously Kraft now as a provider in a different way, but in general, what, what are some of those trends you're seeing technologically with supply chains? Yeah. I, you know, I think you, you, I think you, you just kind of mentioned it is 
the technology, the, A the AI and the ML and the integration technology is really soaring right now. And these systems are now talking to each other. Whereas I think 10 years ago, these systems were in place, but there was a lot of human intervention, like taking the next step in the workflow. Whereas now everything is talking to each other. So, you know, the, the item is placed on the ship and then it's there's a signal that goes back to the system and then the ship departs and it gets to where it's going and that once that item is unloaded there's a signal back to the system and then the payment is released and then or the invoice is sent and the payment released and then we can start this cycle all over again so um where in the past all of these things required some uh, person to touch it now it's just automated so it's much it, it's much quicker it's much more efficient um and you know so i think that's i think that's the big key i think there is um almost every day it feels like there's new technologies popping up craft being one of them um so there's a lot of people recognizing some gaps in the space and um bringing to market some really exciting things um to help fill those i think um you know, I, I think even even little things like like real time alerts like that didn't exist 10 or 15 years ago to be able to tell a customer in real time something has changed within your supply base. You need to address it, you know. Um, so I think technology has has really enabled supply chain to be more efficient. Um, and I, I think it will continue to evolve as more supply organizations adopt technologies. I think for a long time, they, they again, they were just, everyone was kind of going with, um, going with the flow, what was, what had been done forever was working and it was fine. And now with, you know, the, all the disruption of the past 18 months, organizations are saying, hey, how, how can we be smarter? How can we be more proactive? How can we understand everything, you know, what we're, we're hearing a lot is, you know, the end tier analysis, right? So a lot of businesses are really good at understanding their tier one suppliers. But when you start opening that up and peeling back the onion down layers two, three, and four, I mean, it's it's almost overwhelming when you think of it that from that perspective, how much risk you could have if this one tiny little widget provider, you know, all the way up the chain could disrupt these global businesses. It's, it, it's, you know, it's, it becomes a little overwhelming when you think about it that way. But the technology that's in place today is really allowing businesses to understand that and get a grasp on it. And then back to kind of what we were spoke, speaking to earlier, put a plan in place based on the thresholds that that business is comfortable with and then execute on that plan pretty seamlessly. Yeah. Yeah. And it it seems like a lot of organizations were were so focused on using technology to achieve that efficiency that you're talking about, but they didn't necessarily mm -hmm. use it as a way to highlight risk or to identify reliability issues or, or better yet, how is, how is our supply chain potentially impacting our customer experience? And I think that's what a lot of mm -hmm. companies seem to be struggling with right now, you know, post pandemic or the mm -hmm. last year plus is now all of a sudden we have disruptions to our supply chain. We can't tell customers mm -hmm. when we're going to give them product. So now it's right. not just an efficiency issue. It's a reliability issue. It's a customer experience issue. And it just seems like right. it sort of spreads throughout the organization and throughout the, the customer base as well. Yeah, you know, it's 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 funny. I um, I was reading there was a recent IBM study, and they 
um, they came out and they, they interviewed, I forget exactly how many people they interviewed, but they interviewed executives at, at a bunch of companies and 60% said um, that they expected to be disrupted this year by a competitor because of their supply chain organization. Not a new product, not uh, a new app or not a new delivery method, not better marketing, the way their supply chain managed um, you know, manage the business across the board. So this is something that's, that's top of mind for everyone. Um, you know, we are integrating into some of those technology partners that, um, that you shared for that reason, to be able to not only allow um, the businesses to have that tactical level view of all the steps of the supply chain, but then to click over to another tab or to bring in some of these um, supplier um, supplier details into their analytics to get a sense of, okay, if I'm looking at on-time delivery and I'm looking at risk and I'm looking at you know sustainability, let's run some analytics and understand, hey, who are our who are our suppliers who are actually rock stars and let's give them more business because this is matching our sustainability goals and they're on time they're you know they're doing all these things and then where do we need to to focus and maybe give some support to to some of our suppliers that aren't hitting those targets and so it's allowing um having the additional third-party data is allowing our customers to run the analytics and to, to just get to that next level of data and detail to be able to, to manage their supply chain in a way that's that's more effective and more innovative than what's been done in the past. It's just, mm -hmm. you know, and that's where the technology is helping. You know, we couldn't do this stuff 15 years ago. And so you see organizations getting really excited about these changes for that reason. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really getting to the sort of the, the proactive um, supplier scorecard types of measures. So mm -hmm. instead of looking at the tra traditional supply chain met, uh, scorecard or supplier scorecard measures like um, on-time delivery and quality, you know, any sort of quality issues, those are more after the fact. So you can rate, right. you know, you can rate a supplier after they've already mm -hmm. screwed something up. But what you're talking about <laughs> is getting, <laughs> identifying or anticipating <laughs> where you could have a supplier in a situation where they might screw up. Not that you're necessarily going to change that supplier, but at least you can, know about it and make adjustments or right. hedge your bets if you need to. Knowledge is power, right? So the more information you have, the better. And and whether that means you drive them more business, whether that means you realize, hey, there's some there's a hidden risk here that I'm not sure about. Mm -hmm. And we need to we need to start onboarding some alternatives here because there's there's a potential that something might go south. Um, regardless of of where where it fits, having the information to understand more about these businesses is always going to be helpful. Right. So we have a question on Crowdcaster. Actually, it's a comment that I'm going to convert to a question. Yeah. Uh, but the comment is craft services seem well aligned with supply chain maturity development. And I guess my maybe a follow up question just to build on that general comment. And I agree yeah. with that comment is that, you know, the, the technology you guys provide seem to seems to elevate the, the maturity of supply chains. But mm -hmm. how would you just based on the customers you work with or the prospects you talk to? prior to them using your technology, how would you assess the general maturity levels and competency levels of, of organizational supply chains? You know, it, would, if you had to give it a rating or something, or how would you, how would you yeah. describe where most companies are? Gosh, that's, that's so hard to answer. Um, let me think about that. For Is it all over the board? So, 
You know, it is. And, and I, I have, so funny example. So, um, you know, I can't name company names, but so I cover primarily healthcare, pharmaceutical, uh, media and entertainment and retail. And so I've, I'm in the pro I'm working with two different pharmaceutical companies. So one, um, has had, um, is stocking three years of inventory and has a 30 page risk program in place already. And they are buttoned up to the T. One of their main competitors who I'm also working with is just hired someone a year ago to build a third party risk solution. Um, and they're in the process of understanding what, what that's going to look like. How does that fit into their business? And so the answer is that it's, it's really all over the place. Um, I think there are a lot of times when we're having conversations, customers, when we first make a phone call or when we first meet someone, um, people say, oh, we're doing that. You know, we're doing risk management. Oh, we're doing monitoring. We're doing alerting, all these things. But then when you dig in and peel back the onion and figure out what's really being done, it's in very, very basic, simple stuff. And that's why businesses are getting caught because they're doing what's always been done and not leveraging new technology, new data. I mean, there's so much information out there on businesses that is just getting ignored, mm. but for the most part. And so really what we're trying to change is bringing in these these different sources and these different indicators that are leading to an answer that you're trying to get to people just haven't been using it so um you know we do have um we see a lot where um, clients and prospects will want to test our data against another company or test our alerts against another company and we're winning and we're displacing a lot of the really big names in the industry for the because the data and the accuracy and the relevance are of our alerts we actually have a team of people curating them so i you know i know i say alerts and a lot of customers go no i have too many alerts i don't i don't need any more because they're they're signed up on google alerts and they get the same article six times because no one's no one's managed Managing that. So at Craft, we're really focused on curating the alerts to make sure that when our clients get something from us, it's really, really valuable and relevant. And we worked, um, one customer did a test of us against another alert provider in the industry. And um, over the, the, the three month test, um, I think we delivered 156 alerts and they said 86% were critical to have for our business. And so again, we're really focused on um, not just throwing the sink at our customers. We're really trying to curate a an innovative uh, new way of managing suppliers, you know, the supplier data foundation of all of your systems and, and their risk and their ongoing changes. And, um, you know, we are, you know, we just started six years ago. We're a venture backed startup, but we're really making uh, big, big waves in the industry. And we're excited about it because, um, you know, people see the product and they go, oh, my God, like, where has this been? And we're like, you know, here it is. It's here now. So we're excited. Yeah, it's very cool.
If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. That was actually the question I was, I was gonna lead into is uh, speaking of humans and technology and the intersection of the two, uh, when you when you have um, when you have new information like what you're talking about, you're providing sort of a, a new data set, a different way of thinking about supply chain, reliability, sustainability, all these different dimensions that you're talking about. What are mm -hmm. what are some of the challenges that you see from the human side of it? You know, because there's one thing to present people with the data and present them with the tools, but how do you get mm -hmm. them to fully bake this way of thinking into their the way they manage the supply chains? Yeah, you know, it's it's always um it's always a challenge when you change the way things have been done, right? Um, so I think I alluded to this earlier. I mean, previously, um, you know, there was due diligence on the front end with very specialized data providers, right? Someone with a credit score, someone with a cyber score, someone with the this. Um, and then there were the steps and then it was filed away. And then a year, 18 months or two years, it was, it was looked at again. So I think from the perspective of, um, challenges kind of changing the way things have been done. I think um, really the results speak for themselves. So we do a lot of POCs, you know, you know, let's, let's work together for three months. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And what generally happens is, you know, our team is great at training and at helping our customers really understand which data points are these leading indicators of some, some, something to pay attention to. Um, and generally, it, these results come, and either we send an alert, and it saves them money, or th like that the wireless um, example I gave you from four hours down to seven minutes. I mean, you can't. It, it, once the results come, all of a sudden it becomes a a very different conversation about um, not only okay, how can we implement this long term, but who else in the organization can use this? So we we frequently start in these like small POCs and then it just continues to grow because the org there's many parts of an organization that can get this kind of data and that can use this kind of information. So, um, you know, it's it, the beginning, it's, it's kind of like changing an, an existing process that's been in place for a long time. But I think people also realize that what was being done before wasn't working in the past 18 months. That's we've seen that. Right. So, everyone's kind of open to these changes and and um and trying new new things and and modifying the workflow to maybe be a little bit more efficient and and manage things a little bit more proactively and then again moving on to other stuff yeah yeah absolutely yeah that's yeah. a good, good point and it's, it's always good when you have people that recognize the need for change and it sounds like you know in many supply chains people do recognize it. it's just a matter of how do you get them to adjust to this new way of thinking and thinking about the supply chains a little bit more, you know, multidimensionally or holistically, whatever you want to call it, than they may have in the past. Yeah. 
Um, so here's a couple of really good questions just came in on Crowdcast. Yeah. Um, a couple, a couple that might be opening a whole can of worms that we could spend a whole hour on each of these questions. <laughs> but uh, the, the best one, I, I think, is from uh, Bala Krishnu Alu. Um, and he asks, how could the auto industry or how could have the auto industry avoided the chip shortage? And that's a great, relevant, timely topic. I don't know if you have any theories about how to save the world and <laughs> in particular, the chip shortage in the auto industry. Crap isn't paying me enough. I can solve it today, right? <laughs> right. Um, no, so the chip shortage. Okay, so so this is interesting. And this kind of goes back to the challenges around planning your supply chain just around demand forecasting, right? So we take a step back and understand what happened with the supply sh shortage. So these, these factories in China were closed in the early days of COVID, right? When when it hit when COVID hit China and the manufacturing plants closed down, um, that was kind of the first drop, right? Um, so after so once that was back online um, and COVID came over to the states and, and spread globally, um, demand for these products skyrocketed. You know, families were buying multiple tablets or computers for homeschool. They were buying gaming stations. They were doing home upgrades and refrigerators now have these chips in it. I mean, these chips are in everything from tablets to um, kids, gaming stations, to refrigerators, to cars, to they're, they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, so initially when the factory shut down, that caused a shortage, the demand spiked. So that that really was kind of the first layer of challenge. And then what happened was, and this is back to, to the lean strategy, um, a lot of these companies forecasted that demand was gonna drop because they thought people are gonna be scared, they're not gonna buy. So they didn't place the orders. They didn't place the orders. I mean, the, the facilities didn't manufacture. Demand continued to skyrocket and now we're stuck. And there's just not enough, there's not enough to go around and they're trying to get back up to speed, but demand keeps rising and it, it's just, it's this back and forth. And so I, I think it was, I read an article, I think it was Toyota is actually not having a chip shortage because they said, we're going to just keep them. We're going to buy more now because we're not quite sure that this demand is going to drop. And so they're actually okay. Um, and so you see it with, you know, President Biden's executive order trying to bring some of that manufacturing on shore. I think it was, I think it's, don't quote me on this, but I think Taiwan Semiconductor is planning like a $35 billion facility in Arizona, but that's not going to be here for a while, right? So how do we manage right now? It's just going to take some time. Um, the reality yeah. is that the forecasts were wrong. The demand planners were wrong. And because of the then the shutdowns with COVID and, and people that were sick and couldn't work and productivity down, it was just kind of the perfect storm. But it really highlighted the problem with this lean manufacturing um, process. And I think that's part of why, um, you know, businesses are, are, are readjusting and changing that. Yeah. And and your response right there. And actually this whole discussion is, is sort of a good reminder of how increasingly important and integrated supply chains are becoming with the rest of an organization, because now with this issue with, with semiconductors, that's not necessarily just a chain or a, a supply chain management issue. It's also a, a demand forecasting issue. So you think about, you know, was it really the supply was, was the supply chain the problem or was it the demand forecasting and people assume that demand was going to drop. And so therefore right. the supply chain, you know, adjusted right. accordingly. 
So, yeah. and you also mentioned before, like the employee sentiment. So then you, you're starting to get into human capital management and now suddenly human capital management, supply chain management, those are kind of coming together as well. So I think supply chain management is really broadening and sort of the tentacles of it are kind of broadening throughout an entire organization in many ways. Yeah. You know, I work with um, a big furniture retailer and they cannot get good talent. They can't hire in their manufacturing facilities here in the States. And there's all of these, you hear about unemployment and all of these things, but um, where their manufacturing facilities are, there's competitors manufacturing in the same place and they just can't drive. So they're using the tool to say, how can I, attract this top talent. So they're using it to research things like job openings and where where these other companies are hiring and salary numbers that we're pulling into the tool um, to be able to then char- adjust their own job offerings to be able to attract that talent because they just they can't get enough people in the factory. So it's supply chain now. I mean, you know, obviously I like talking about it and, and this is, um, you know, I built my career around supply chain and risk and data and um, but it's finally getting the credit and and the visibility that it deserves. I think for a long time, um, like I said earlier, it was kind of just the status quo and everyone expected it to run smoothly. And it had for so long that people kind of forgot that, hey, things there could be a ripple here that then turns into a big tidal wave. And that's what's happened with COVID. And um, I think moving forward in the future, we will... Um, we're going to continue to see these workflows shifting and technology shifting um, to make to make everyone better. Um, you know, supply chains, businesses, um, you know, make things better for the consumer. All it's it's just I think it's all it was something that had to happen. It's just it kind of it was this perfect storm with COVID and everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and somewhat of a, a related question that is also very interesting is. Um, Unfortunately, I can't see who asked this question for some reason. Um, it doesn't show the user or the person that asked this, but it's a great question. The question is emerging technologies are changing our available resources, meaning our suppliers are changing how they produce the raw materials we need. For instance, the steel we need is also needed by electric cars and that cuts into our available raw materials. Would Kraft simply point us to another supplier? And so in other words, you know, how do you, how do you navigate that issue or, or how do you anticipate that problem that you have with mm-hmm. the demand, even if your own demand for a certain product isn't increasing, but others are now competing for the same limited raw materials. How do you how do you anticipate that, or is there a way to anticipate that? Yeah. So, um, you know, one of the things that we're actually actively evaluating now is bringing in um, commodity data mm-hmm. and alerting customers to changes within commodity availability and pricing because we're hearing this a lot so one one of uh, I had a conversation yesterday and their big issue is um, they're anticipating a big aluminum shortage coming up so all of their packaging and all of their product development is moving away from tin and aluminum because they they're expecting to not be able to to have enough fairly soon um, so that is something we're actively looking at we're looking at at um, providers to see if anyone meets what our customers are asking for from that perspective. I think so today we would help you find another supplier is is really the the easiest answer to that. Um, We would be sending you alerts on those particular suppliers that were struggling um, within within those sectors. Um, And there would likely be other indicators 
highlighting that there were some things going on, whether that be um, visits dropped, hiring dropped, executive changes, cyber and, and ESG scores go, you know, going haywire. Um, we calculate the Z score and a lot of other ratios um, within our, fi our finances section. So that's where that would go. Um, and that's a big challenge for a lot of companies is, um, you know, lumber right now, businesses can't get pallets. I mean, something that we've taken for granted for so long with the, the lumber shortage, it's um, it, it's just really highlighting um, things that we never thought we would care about, you know, and, and um, it's popping up left and right. So we are actively looking for a, a data source to be able to answer that question in greater detail, but for now it would be around um, keeping you up to date on changes within those existing companies and then finding others that do the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Get, gets back to that whole point of uh, vendor um, diversification and geographic diversification, mm -hmm. you know, ba based mm -hmm. on the vendor themselves or maybe the material they're supplying or whatever the case may be. Mm -hmm. so it's uh, good stuff. Um, so we have time for one more question. I appreciate all the, the great questions and I definitely appreciate your time, Amy, but uh, yeah. one more question that, that came in, that's probably a, a good place to um, maybe tie this all together and wrap this up is what impact do you think geopolitics will have on global supply chain management and how do companies go about mitigating disruption and environmental climate change disruptions? So that sort of gets to that sustainability thing that you were talking about earlier as well. Yeah. You know, God, that's a great question. Um, let me unpack that because there's there's a few. Um, a so there. yeah, there's a lot there. Let me just read through that so I make sure I'm answering it properly. Um, so like I said earlier, um, every single company that we're working with is talking about diversity and sustainability. So um, and that there's, there's multiple lenses to, to look at sustainability. Let's just focus on that for the purposes of this question. Um, so there's things like, um, you know, water consumption, usage, um, um, carbon emissions, all of those things. And a lot of those data points um, it can actually just be found online. If you do enough research, they're, they're publicly available. Um, so there's, there's looking at that. Um, and then there's looking at details and scores in comparison to other businesses that are similar to that hmm. industry location. So there's a lot of different layers to sustainability. Um, and each company we're working with is a different program in place. So um, some of our customers are asking their suppliers to then initiate some sustainability programs within themselves. Um, it, sometimes it's going down to tiers three and four where they're requiring certain um, that certain sustainability requirements be met in order to move forward. Um, in the in this case of you know U.S. government contracts, there are requirements in place in order to bid on a contract. You have to have certain sustainability metrics to be able to 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 sell to the government. So there's there's a lot of different layers to that question. Um, I think um, making sure um, that you're you have good information. Um, that you're comparing that to industry and, and geolocation, right? So depending on the, the, the industry of the company and where they're located, 
the, the possibilities for sustainability and, and, and environmental governance and all of these things are going to be different. So a, a, a manufacturing site in India has a very different footprint than a, a manufacturing site in the south of France. Um, and so it's 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 about under you know understanding where they fall within that ecosystem, but then also understanding that the nuances of that location and, and the rules in that country and their own programs. So it's it's very very complicated. I think. Um, like I said, it's top of mind for every company we're working with. And I think, I think organizations are still trying to figure it out because there's, there's even another angle of, you know, young consumers now who really care about the environment are demanding this of these companies. They're, they're using their dollars to shop at companies like Rothy's and Allbirds. It's all sustainable and recycled shoes. And so they're taking off because businesses care. There's, um, a home goods um, company called the Citizenry. And so they source their goods and they manufacture their goods in, in local villages all around the world. And it's very small, but then it provides um, a source of income in places that otherwise wouldn't necessarily have that ability. And, and younger consumers are flocking to these businesses. So there's that whole other angle of how do we incorporate these just from a brand standpoint. Um, and so there's just, I think that that diversity st sustainability is going to be kind of the future buzzwords within, it already is, but it's gonna continue to be the big buzzwords within supply chain um, organizations trying to figure out how do they leverage that um, to make themselves a better company, but then also to make them attractive to, to the consumers that now really care about that. Yeah. No, no, did I answer that question? I'm sorry. That was, a, was there's a lot in that question. Yeah, no, I I think you did. I, I guess it's, a, it's up to Rumi whether or not he thinks he, he answered it. I thought it was a good, good response. But it is interesting. I hadn't thought a lot about the, uh, you know, the climate change, sustainability. You know, that is obviously an emerging area and company companies are, organizations in general are sort of issuing their own self-imposed mandates in many cases on how they want to improve their uh, climate footprint and obviously supply chain management has a, has a big impact on that as well. Yeah. Um, and then maybe I'll ask you one last, I know I said that would be the last one, but this is actually That's probably okay. we, we had a little break in between with our technical issues. So yeah. <laughs> we can go and over then, a little and, bit. And now we're getting, getting some more questions, but this yeah. is probably actually a good, uh, a good capstone sort of question, which is, and it sort of ties into some of the other questions I asked earlier around tech supply chain management technologies in general. Um, mm -hmm. But the question is from uh, Amin Kafal, and he asks, can craft solutions help companies where a big part of their supply chain management is still managed uh, primarily manually, basically help a company with no solid or almost obsolete business applications in place, um, ERP, for example, and where most of the workflows are managed using sheets. So if you have a very manual supply chain, yeah. can craft help with that? Or is that is it sort of like craft plus a supply chain management or ERP type of solution? No, yes, reach out. Um, absolutely, we can absolutely help with that. Um, we have customers um, across the world and from very sophisticated, you know, global orchestrated organizations down to 
um, you know, smaller companies that, to your point, don't have a, a sophisticated technology landscape in place, and they just they they need a place to start. And we do everything in between. So you anyone can reach out to me directly at um, Amy at Craft.co or on LinkedIn. Feel free to reach out. Um, like I said, I love to have these conversations. Um, if anyone just wants to. Uh, wants to learn more about craft or just supply chain, what we're seeing. Um, happy to speak to anyone um, that has, uh, oh, thanks, there you go. Um, happy to speak to anyone that has any any more questions or would like to learn more about craft. I appreciate you being here, Amy. This is a great conversation. I know we could probably spend another hour easily on this stuff, but this is a good overview. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, happy to and happy to chat again if it makes sense. If if, if everyone's asking for more supply chain stuff, like I said, um, I you know I love talking about it, and it's the, the landscape is changing daily, so it's mm -hmm. it's really fun. So, um, thanks for having me, and and nice um, nice talking with you. Okay, well, thanks very much for that great discussion, Amy. Very insightful, good information for us as we think about our supply chains now and in the future, and uh, pretty eye opening too in a lot of ways. It gives us some different ways of thinking about supply chains and being a little bit more proactive in how we manage supply chains and supply chain management. So when we come back from a break, we're going to talk a little bit more about supply chain and then we're going to shift gears and talk about enterprise asset management. We're going to have another guest on the show, uh, Wayne Holtham from Third Stage Consulting uh, Asia Pacific. He'll be on to talk about all things enterprise asset management. We'll be back with all of that right after a quick break on Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, Contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. You can find us live every Wednesday on YouTube. We release new episodes. You also find us with new episodes every Wednesday on your favorite audio platform of choice or podcast audio platform of choice, I should say, whether that's Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, Spotify, or iHeartRadio, whatever it may be. So be sure to subscribe, listen, share it with friends, get the word out and uh, share it with anyone you think might benefit from this info. So uh, we just had this discussion with Amy. Uh, from Kraft. What what are some of your thoughts uh, around her view of supply chain and some of the trends and observations she has? Yeah, I mean, it, it's she's preaching to the choir when she talks about how important it is to make decisions based on data. And I feel like that's, that's at the core, that's what Kraft is doing is helping you gather all these different data points and tell a story or help you tell a story so that you can make the next best move. So, I mean, it's something that would help leaders lead, whether it's a leader of an organization or a leader within an industry um, that's leading the market. I mean, it's something that every organization needs to be cognizant of is, are you making your decisions based on data? And more often than not, it'll help you make the right decisions, right? So one thing I was curious about that stood out to me was, 
you know, she talked about 2020 and COVID, you know, being that catalyst for a lot of supply chain challenges. Um, but she mentioned that there were even indicators before COVID entered the picture. So I'm, I'm curious if you have insights on, you know, what were those indicators? What do you think, um, you know, these companies were seeing troubles with? Was it just their reliance on international trade or do you think there, it went far beyond that? I think that's part of it is the reliance on international trade and the lead time associated with that and the, uh, the concentration of risk that, that is associated with that. I think a lot of organizations just got comfortable with their supply chains because it was working, you know, it worked fine in some ways before COVID. And then what COVID did, you know, it's easy to blame COVID. It's easy to blame, you know, the shutdowns, the economic shutdowns and all that stuff. But the reality is a lot of it, even though that is a part of it, a lot of it had, was self-imposed by a lot of organizations that just didn't have healthy supply chains. And in good times, you know, it's hard to see the warts or see where the opportunities for improvement are until you run into a situation like a pandemic where you really, you realize that your supply chain isn't as healthy as you thought, or is, isn't as transparent or nimble or agile, whatever you, you want or need that you don't have. So I think those were some of the indicators, uh, you know, inefficiencies in that supply chain and in, in sort of a suboptimal supply chain to begin with, I think it was part of the problem. Right. And I mean, it sounds like, I mean, you guys discussed a handful of things that a company can do to help mitigate a supply chain blockage. And it ranged from, you know, do you have a diverse set of vendors? Um, you know, she mentioned some of her clients are stocking up on three years worth of, you know, materials of inventory so that if something happens with their supplier, they are set. Um, things like this bring up the concept of economies of scale, because I mean, if you're ordering, you know, a hundred thousand, I don't know, cups, mugs, <laughs> then you're going to get them for a cheaper price uh, than you would if you ordered say 50,000. So if you, I mean, let's talk about diver diversifying your vendors. If you have two different vendors and you're ordering 50,000 from one and 50,000 from the other to help mitigate that risk, are you maybe, I mean, I'm sure it changes from case to case, but are you potentially paying more because you're missing out on economies of scale? Yeah. And I think that's a, that's a great question and something that, that we alluded to, or we sort of touched on it, didn't dive into a lot of detail on it in the discussion with Amy, but, you know, I think traditionally companies have thought of supply chain management as something that is a cost center that you need to figure out how to get the best cost possible. So the focus is on economies of scale, purchasing as much as we can up front. Um, for some organizations, maybe it was a little bit different. Maybe it was more of a just-in-time inventory model where they wanted to run lean, again, as a way to reduce costs. And that's okay. That 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 is a strategy. But I think what the pandemic shows us and what supply chain disruptions show us is that there's risk with that. And there's hidden costs and costs that might come back to haunt you later on, even though you save money by not having as much inventory or whatever the case may be, you pay for that at times later on. So I think companies now are probably going to have to maybe look in the mirror and challenge themselves a little bit more to say, you know, how important is cost reduction and efficiencies and scale relative to flexibility and reliability or providing better customer service and, and being responsive to customers. And those things are in conflict sometimes and you have to sort of pick what direction you want to lean. Not that you can only have one, but 
you do need to prioritize and decide what's most important. If you're a high-end producer of, uh, you know, highly customized products, let's just say, and you do a lot, you pride yourself on being flexible and providing fast service and you provide custom solutions, custom products, whatever the case may be, chances are you might want to lean a little away from cost reduction and more towards, let's just make sure we can be responsive and adapt to any sort of disruption and be able to give the customers what they want when they want it. And if that's the case, maybe you're charging a little bit more, maybe your cost structure is a little bit higher, but that might be the best model for you. I think where companies get stuck is when they try to do that, plus they want to reduce costs and drive down their costs as much as they can, reduce inventory. And right there, you've got sort of a conflict or competing priorities there. So you have to figure out what you want to be and what the supply chain's role in your organization, even outside the supply chain itself. And that's something we talked about too, is supply chain touches so many other parts of your organization, even outside the organization as well, obviously. So those are some, some things to think about too. Yeah. And she said at best supply chain now has a seat at the table with the CEO. It's, it's interesting to think that that hasn't been the case just because if your supply chain, you know, fumbles a little bit, you don't have a business, especially if you're in a product related and you know, if you're, if you're making products, if you can't make your products or you have a halt in, you know, a certain component of making that product, where's your business at, you know? So, um, it should have a seat at the table and and to piggyback off of what you're saying it's just what is that risk threshold and is it going to change moving forward in the in the rest of the decade and beyond i mean are these companies going to pour in to their supply chain and make sure that they don't ever come across a situation that they found themselves in at the beginning um you know last last year um that was another thing too uh that you guys talked about was cybersecurity of your own business, but also cybersecurity of your suppliers and of your vendors. And it it kind of took me back to a talk that uh, I think it was Daryl and Marcus gave at Digital Stratosphere, which is a conference that we host every year. And they had a segment about um, the importance of cybersecurity and data migration and how it plays into your contract with your vendors as well. So if you Let's let's take a look at, you know, say you're implementing a, a new ERP system and they are a cloud based system, for example. I mean, the cloud, if, if you host on the cloud, there's not really any cybersecurity measures that you can take, per se, because all your data is on, for example, HubSpot, right, or on Salesforce. Is that accurate? So you're kind of dependent on Salesforce and HubSpot to make sure that their cybersecurity is right is that right absolutely yeah so is that something i mean the conversation that market was was having is make sure it's negotiated into your contract of who's responsible in case of a data breach when it comes to a situation like that or you know maybe even if you're off of the cloud and it's an on-premise you know is there a conversation there of responsibility behind um you know the cybersecurity component of it yeah, that was that was an interesting part of the conversation with Amy too. Is I hadn't thought about cybersecurity and the implications on external suppliers in in your overall supply chain, and, and maybe using that as a uh, it's just another form of risk. You know, if a, if a supplier doesn't have good cybersecurity policies, then that's a risk that you've got to weigh. In the same way that I think organizations intuitively know that you have your supplier scorecards, and you say. Does the supplier deliver on time? Do they deliver high quality? 
but those are more reactive measures. Whereas what Amy's suggesting, a lot of what she talks about and advocates for is that that predictable or the predictive aspect of supply chain management. So what are those leading indicators that might suggest there's a problem or a risk that you can assess and score your suppliers in the same way you you'd score them on cost or quality or whatever the case may be? Right. It's just so interesting to think about supply chain in this in this context, you know, because I keep coming back to the chip shortage because it's just such a prime example. Yeah, you had the pandemic, but uh, you know, I want to dive deeper into what you guys talked about of it being the demand planners that were just off on their forecast. You know, they thought consumers would be afraid to buy where the opposite was true. So I don't know. Do you think that that this type of technology that Kraft provides, is that something that could have helped that industry, the, the auto industry in forecasting a little bit better? I don't know if they were, you know, tracking traffic on Ford's website. You know, if you see an uptick in traffic on your website, would that mean more people might be interested in buying cars and help you forecast? Yeah, I was just, it's funny you said that because I was just thinking that. I was thinking that that is a good leading indicator is if you see a supplier's website whose traffic is increasing, uh, then that's a good indicator that there's some renewed interest. And if you see a spike, especially when you think there's going to be a soft demand, that tells you there might be some sort of uh, um, misalignment in you know between what you think and what reality is. Another interesting thing that you guys were talking about was employment. I mean, we kind of talked about it at the beginning of this episode, but um, Kraft specifically helps their clients determine how they can attract the best talent. So they look at the different data points across similar companies that are looking for the same um, type of employee, and it helps them bring in that talent. So it's interesting because she mentioned it's hard to hire, um, and be, it's because technology it keeps shifting, the workflows keep shifting. You know, if, if we're changing at this rate, will employees be needed in a warehouse in 20 to 30 years? Or do you think we're kind of deviating from that path? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I mean, it, Amazon is sort of leading the charge in warehouse automation and robotics and things that would suggest that humans may not be as relevant uh, in the future. Um, I'm not sure even at Amazon's warehouses, I'm not sure how, you know, what the, how significant the impact uh, of robotics on human interaction has been, you know, I don't know if there's still opportunity for them to drive further efficiency and automation uh, in that or not, but I think they've sort of proven to the rest of the world that you can create these highly automated warehouses and do it, do it effectively. Now, the problem is it takes a pretty big investment and a lot of planning and design and things that isn't going to happen overnight. And it'll take a lot of organizations. It'll take years, you know, if not longer to, to get there, you know, maybe a decade or more to get to the point where they could have that level of automation. But it seems to be that's where people are headed. And you, for companies like Amazon that are finding ways to balance what we talked about before, which is driving down costs, but also being responsive and providing quality and all that stuff, they found a way just given their sheer scale and patience, I think over the years, they found a way to find a what seems to be a good balance there. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I, it's hard to say when that would happen. I, I think that seems to be where the, the needle's moving, though. 
Yeah, and I, I'm guessing that's why everybody's so scared of AI and robotics. And <laughs> but you know, another point to it is before the internet came into the picture back in the '90s. I mean, people were kind of nervous, feeling the same way. But it turned out to create the entire tech space, you know. And there's so many jobs, and it led to an increase in jobs. So maybe it's some jobs are going to be taken away, but they'll be replaced with something else pertaining to running the technology behind it. We can yeah, <laughs> I think long term that's probably true. It, I think the challenge is that short term, and this is more from a change management consulting perspective, you know, that helping clients through these sorts of transformations is there is a fear that there's a fear of what's going to happen to me right now. And if I work in a warehouse, if I'm a warehouse worker, I'm not thinking, well, it's okay if my job gets automated because it'll just create an opportunity for me somewhere else. But the problem is, I don't know what that is. It's something, but it, it will probably happen. Maybe, maybe not, but I don't know what it is. And that uncertainty is what drives a lot of fear and resistance to change. So, you know, back to your point about how quickly could this automation happen? I mean, it's easy to say that these companies are just going to come in and install robots tomorrow and just get it over with and do it. But the reality is you're dealing with humans who are making those decisions and there's going to be inherent resistance to that change. And I think it's not the technology that's going to slow down that warehouse automation or artificial intelligence adoption. It's going to be the humans, you know, slowing it down uh, for better or for worse. So I think that's something to think about as well. It's, it's not, it's not, you know, if you're, if you're living paycheck to paycheck and your job's at risk, you're not thinking, well, it's okay in the long term. this is going to be better for me. You're thinking, but next month I might lose my job and that's a problem. So. Right. And one thing, too, that Amy mentioned as it relates to OCM in supply chain is that the main thing that helps get, you know, the team on board with a change like that to the supply chain is results and benefits realization. But like you said, you don't realize those results until way down the line. And hopefully you're still there at the company to realize those benefits. Right. Yeah. So. I could I could see that. I mean, the short term kind of being a gray area and creating some hesitation um, and just making it a little harder for these organizations to kind of take the plunge into these newer technologies. Yeah, stuff. I agree. Yep. And speaking of new technologies, our next guest, Wayne Holtham, is going to be on to talk about enterprise asset management. And is this a topic you're familiar with or have you had any exposure to enterprise asset management before? talking about this podcast episode? No, honestly, I am green on this concept. So, um, you know, it seems like it's just an extension of an ERP, but uh, I'm going to just divert to Wayne because I don't know. <laughs> you're right. you're going you're gonna to listen and learn just like I, I will exactly. with, uh, with Wayne as well. Well, <laughs> we'll, bring, we'll bring Wayne on right after a quick break to talk more about enterprise asset management, what it is, how it fits into organizations, where it's relevant, um, how it relates to ERP, all that good stuff. We'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting 
to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Hello and welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, where you can find us with new episodes every Wednesday on YouTube and your favorite podcast platforms of choice. Be sure to subscribe, listen weekly, and share with colleagues and friends. I'm excited for our next guest who has been on the show before, a couple times, I believe. Um, he is our Vice President of Asia Pacific, uh, Third Stage Asia Pacific's office in Brisbane, Australia. And he is a guru in a number of different aspects of digital transformation. One of those areas is enterprise asset management. That's an area that he's very passionate about, has a lot of experience with, and I'm excited to have Wayne on the show to help us understand what EAM is and how it relates to ERP and how it fits in with overall digital transformation. So Wayne, thanks for being here today. Thanks, Eric. It's great to be here. I've, um, it, it's, it's good to be part of the uh the third stage family. A bit of my background is that I've uh, uh, seen, yeah, been in this space of uh, asset management uh, over a number of years. Um, came from a trade background and then went into consulting. And so a big, a big portion of my uh, my career has been in that uh, delivering uh, enterprise asset management um, projects. And uh, so, uh, so it's interesting that we're actually here today to talk about the differences of VAM. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and. Uh, first of all, it's great having you on the team. Our Australia office is one of the more recent offices that, that we've opened uh, internationally. And uh, you and I have worked together for some time, even before uh, you becoming part of Third Stage. So it's good to have you on board. Um, now, talking about enterprise asset management, that's something that some people may have heard of, some people listening may have heard of, um, some may not have. Um, but what is, if you were to simplify for the layperson or someone who's not familiar with the term, what, what exactly is enterprise asset management? Uh, it's it's about uh, having uh, managing your assets so that you can actually plan and schedule and maintain them effectively. But you need to leverage a lot of your other ERP type um, uh, your ERP type uh, functions. So your HCM, your um, your finance, and so it leverages all of that. But it takes the next layer of complexity because you need to plan and schedule, and you need to. Um, uh, have intelligence about your assets and understand what your assets are and what they should perform like. So, so it's a bit more detail uh, that overlays it uh, other than just an ERP. Yeah, yeah. So asset intensive uh, companies or companies are investing heavily in capital assets. I imagine that's a pretty important technology. Um, what are some of those industries though that would benefit the most or that, that most commonly would be drawn to uh, enterprise asset management technology? Uh, mining, oil and gas have always been the traditional um, uh, players of uh, enterprise asset management. Uh, these days, a bit more has come into the way uh, of, um, you know, companies that end up as an infrastructure as a service. So a utility, electricity utility, a water utility, you know, airports, uh, port, shipping ports, uh, terminals, those sort of things are all now highly asset intensive and they need to be managed and understood 
on their life cycle of their assets so that they can actually maintain for a particular cost base. And so, um, so those, there's, a, there's even, even governments now, uh, health uh, managing hospitals, uh, managing justice, you know, all of, the, all of the building and infrastructure they might have, universities. Um, it, it's, a, it's amazing how, how many uh, asset intensive uh, industries or organisations we have these days um, over and above what we, what we did in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like there's a lot of uh, cost savings that could happen as a result of being able to manage that stuff well. And I have, I have a question for you along those lines here, here in a second. Yeah. Um, so what did you, just a, a question along the lines of your, your response of, of uh, what industries are using enterprise asset management? What did these, these sorts of industries, what did they do before enterprise asset management technology existed? Or, or maybe give us a you know, do you, do you have an idea of what the history is or what, it, what were people doing before to manage their assets and manage some of these things you're talking about? Yeah, it was, it was really in the past people would rely on uh, their trade network or their trade base of people to come in and they would have manual records of when something was last replaced and they would look at it and go, well, I think it's going to last a bit longer or it's getting noisy, so I will, I will replace it. And so it was based on a reactive type approach. And uh, in today's world, that's a little bit hard because we want a lot of reliability, whereas in the past it would break and we'd fix it and we'd just accept that. And, and it wasn't the, the pressure or the cost uh, drivers that, um, that drove high performance. Whereas today it's, it's more of we need maximum uptime. You know, we're actually, if we're an infrastructure uh, service provider, we want to maintain a very high service level but we don't want failures. And so, so it's, it's now we need to understand what's the health of an asset. Um, we need to be able to predict what it might be doing so that we don't have outages when we don't, when we don't really don't want them. Right. Yeah. I can see how that'd be of great value. Yeah. When, yep. I, when I first, just as a, a side to that, when I first started um, in fleet management, I took over uh, managing a fleet of um, line haul trucks here in Australia, and and uh, we had a card system. That was our that was our what we call today a CMMS computer management maintenance system, and so um, it worked great. But you know, it was one of those things. It was limited in the sense that uh, if you didn't fill out all the information, you didn't get uh, you, you you didn't have a good record. Well, not a lot's changed now when we move into the computer world because if people don't update and maintain those records, we have even a bigger problem. Right. Yeah. Sounds like it's come a long way. It's kind of like the the old punch cards, you know, with yeah. the, the predecessors to ERP systems and mainframes and all that stuff. You had the the old punch cards, be, you know, before my time, but I've heard all about them, and it seems like that similar trajectory or journey that technology evolution's been on in the EAM space as well. Oh, definitely, definitely, yes. It's, uh, it, and, and I suppose it's, it's caused its own level of complexity because the people that are using it are, are not necessarily IT savvy and so they don't see the, the relevance of um, keeping records as detailed and information as clear and concise as what it should be. So, um, so that's usually a lot of the challenges that people face as they, uh, as they manage, work through and try and improve what they, what they do in the asset space. That's interesting. So along those lines, and who, who in an organization typically would, would own the enterprise asset management function and the, and the technology that would go along with that? Who's, who's the owner typically in, a, in most companies? Well, it, it's interesting because, uh, because it's um, lots of organizations uh, use an enterprise model. Um, the enterprise owner is normally the CFO and the CFO has probably the least amount of knowledge of how to run an asset. 
Uh, in some organisations, they'll have the operating officers, chief operating officer will actually be the champion of the asset space. But um, it, it's one of those areas that um, because it derives itself from finance, finance usually drives the, uh, you know, I suppose the way that we run our asset um processes because they're all trying to balance the cost whereas in today's world we want to run them based on a life cycle an understanding of what it costs to actually operate the asset and so that's more of an operational um, focus and and in businesses today not a lot have actually taken that leap uh, to, to uh, towards the operational focus gotcha okay makes sense now, you started to talk a bit about this, but I'll, I'll ask it. Maybe we can dive a little bit more into this. But what makes EAM, Enterprise Asset Management Technology, different from ERP? What's what's the main difference between broader enterprise technologies versus EAM? Um, I suppose the difference is that uh, when we talk about e ERP, we're talking about transactional type information. When we're talking uh, EAM, we're talking functional. So we're actually saying, we need to understand the, the um, details about this asset, what its performance is like, uh, whereas when we're actually capturing financial information, we're just doing a transaction and measuring it. And, and so that's, that's essentially the difference from EAM. Um, the other dynamic that comes in it is the function piece is we actually have to manage um, timings um, of when we're going to uh, work on that asset or when it's going to be out of service which also then relies on its um, availability. So, so there's a lot more complexity about how we actually integrate. There's a lot more integration points where it comes to um, us needing to be good at our planning and scheduling, uh, whereas with finance, it's just we're trying to measure our, uh, our performance. In HR, we're trying to just identify who we actually have and, and how we would pay and that we're paying on time. So there's a lot more static type functions in an ERP, whereas in an EAM, there's a lot more moving parts that you're constantly mm. updating um, and, and, and constantly are changing. And that's probably the difference. Right. Now, it, it seems like there'd be a lot of uh, potential to integrate the data that you have in your core financials or your core ERP enterprise technology and EAM. Is that true? Or how do you see the technology? Oh, very, very true. Because if you look at any any piece of work that you do on an asset, you want to know how much it costs to be able to do that. Um, and so your financial um, interaction is is vital in the sense that every time you do, say, a work order or, or whatever, you'll actually have who's going to pay for that. So it might be that you're doing a capital improvement. It might be that you're actually doing an operational. It might be that you're doing, um, in some cases, it might be uh, self-funded or cross-funded sort of thing. So, so that allows the, the interaction with the finance to be able to, to measure and identify where those costs are actually coming from and, uh, and how they're actually uh, being applied. Mm, makes total sense. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask Wayne, I'm going to ask you some more questions about some of the more forward thinking aspects of VAM as far as what some of the trends are in the space, who the vendors are, uh, how to develop a business case, and ultimately how to get started on an EAM journey. So we'll uh, be back in just a second, right after this quick break. If you are involved 
involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. Before the break, we were talking about what exactly EAM is and what uh, how it differs from ERP and what some of the common industries that use EAM are. Um, but what are some of the major business benefits that organizations achieve or can achieve from leveraging this sort of uh, EAM technology? Well, it's uh, the, the benefits are really around their cost. And it's the only area where they can actually save money, I suppose, in what they uh, what they provide as a service. So if you can effectively manage your asset life cycles, um, you can actually drive a lot more profit to your bottom line. And um, and that, that's probably the, the, the big area. If you do it poorly, you can end up where the costs blow out and, you, and that's, that's a real uh, challenge to manage because it becomes an exponential cost blowout. If, you know, one thing leads to another, which leads to another, and that those costs are quite, uh, can can grow quite uh, extensively. Whereas if you actually do it efficiently, you can actually improve um, what you're, because you know, you're providing a service for a particular cost. If you can actually, if you can save because you're more efficient in the asset management space, then your profit area becomes far greater. And so it's a, it's a real upside to it, you know, and, and if you do it well, you can save between 60 and 80% on what it would traditionally cost, say five or Five, uh, five or six years ago in managing assets. So, um, so it's come a long way uh, if to, to be able to manage assets effectively uh, because there's a lot more opportunities to do that. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. And earlier in my career, um, I, was, I did a lot of work in energy and utilities and I know asset management was a big deal to them or, and still is a big deal to them, as you mentioned. Uh, but one thing I remember from doing a lot of work in that space was that a lot of utilities had this whole mindset of, of wanting to sweat the assets. So in other words, to get as much out of it as you can before you you have to replace it. And, and really being able to recognize, you know, the assets that maybe you can uh, milk them for longer, for lack of a better word, and then there's others you might have to do something sooner. Um, but it kind of begs the question of when you look at CapEx versus OpEx, you know, the capital spending versus your operating costs, do you see a difference in the benefits that companies can achieve either in their day-to-day uh, -day maintenance and, and operating costs versus the, um, the bigger capital spend and outlays? Yeah, and it's interesting you say about splitting the assets. You know, in the past, we would assume a life of an asset, whereas today we have the technology that allows us to look at this, uh, all of the health properties that an asset might be sending back to us, you know, uh, information about how it's performing, like our own health check as such. Um, and so that allows us to be able to sweat the asset, but not risk the failure. And I suppose that's that difference. So we can actually maximize how long we run that asset and then plan for that capital investment to actually do that renewal in a time which suits the business or suits the service that we're doing. So, so the cost, the impact of it being out of service isn't as great. 
And, um, and so that, that's probably that bit of a difference when it comes to what we would have experienced in the past to what today is available to us. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes, makes total sense. Um, what about the vendors, the software vendors that provide this sort of technology? Who are just a few examples of some of the, the leading uh, EAM technology vendors? Well, all of the big players in there, SAP, uh, you know, S4 is, uh, is in there as an EAM space, which is um, uh, probably a big player in the market. You've got your Oracle um, uh, and uh, JDE, the, the couple of brands that they actually run in there. You've got IBM, they run Maximo. You've got a, uh, Microsoft with AX Dynamics. Um, there's a couple of uh, probably niche uh, players in there. There's the Hitachi ABB. They run Ellipse, which has probably been under a, a lot of different company banners over the years, but Ellipse is still a, a, a very prominent um, product in the energy space. Maintenance Connection is a total SaaS option. Uh, Infor runs a cloud suite. So in their manufacturing, they run a lot of asset management in the manufacturing space. They, they have a good suite there. Uh, one upkeep, um, e-maintenance, and uh, another smaller one, which is MVP Plant. And so so they're probably that's probably the top 10 players in that game. Such. Okay. So even though you mentioned before that EAM and ERP are distinctly different, it sounds like you still could, you still have options in terms of either going out and finding a EAM specialist, uh, specialized type of technology, or if you're implementing an ERP system, some of the vendors like SAP and Oracle and Infor and Microsoft, like you mentioned, they they tend to have an EAM module or offering that can kind of bolt onto their ERP. Is that is that true? Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And now we've got the opportunity where best of breed is starting to, I suppose technology's evolved to the point where uh, ERPs are a lot more um, uh, have a have a greater ability to be able to integrate with other uh, type systems. You know whether it be HCM systems or whether it be CRM systems or some of the EAM systems are similar in that sense. So you could have an ERP and then put a best of breed um, EAM solution uh, on the front end to be able to manage your assets. And uh, probably companies like Oracle and SAP don't prefer that but uh but definitely that's an option in today's world gotcha okay great that makes total sense um all right so how has eam technology changed in recent times you sort of earlier you were talking about the early early days of eam but just in more recent years how how has the technology evolved how has it improved what are some of the major advancements that some of these vendors are making um, a lot of it is in the information availability. So, you know, if you look at a lot of these systems here, instead of having to search and find information about an asset or how it's performing or whatever, they've now got developed it to the point where that information is there and available to the to the user, to the either the asset manager or whatever. And so they can actually see we've got this uh, starting to show signs of failure. And so we need to start planning early to be able to do this. Whereas in the past, it was that thing of uh, someone might pick it up, they might not pick it up, and then you would start to plan. And so today, the inside information that technology offers is far superior than what we've had in the past. Mm. Okay. So it's, the technology's changed quite a bit. There's a lot of options out there in the marketplace, and it, it seems like it could be a bit overwhelming if you're an organization, you're not really sure where to start or you know how to get started on the journey. What, what sort of advice would you give to organizations in terms of just identifying the best EAM options for them that, that might best fit their needs? 
I think they really need to understand what uh, what they're looking for out of their system. So, uh, you know, uh, EAM presents a challenge in the sense that it's data hungry. So, if you've got a um, if you've got systems that are fairly uh, old, you haven't really taken a lot of energy to actually maintain the information about your assets. Your systems and processes aren't really solid and robust. Then you need to really understand that because any of the new systems you put in will um, will will cause a lot of issues because you will not get the benefit out of them because of the amount of data that they require to be able to give the information that, that they're really known for. And so when the evaluation comes, it's not just buying something that is, this looks great from a user interface, it's understanding what sits behind that. And that's, I suppose that's that evaluation piece of how mature are we with our systems and processes. And, um, you know, most times with EAM, a lot of the users are very comfortable with um, looking at uh, adopting new processes but if it if it becomes overwhelming, they 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 will just pull away, and and you end up with a a gap between the functionality and you know what you're actually trying to achieve. Right, right. So having someone like the third stage team that's independent and agnostic can really help navigate some of the differences and the nuances of of the different technologies relative to your needs. It sounds like that could be a a, a value to organizations that are trying to pick a solution. Yeah, it is, and it's 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 confusing at the moment in the sense that you know a vendor will come in and say you know I have I have the best system and they'll demonstrate it and make it look like it, it really works well. Then right. you'll have a system integrator. You might ask a trusted system integrator, and that system integrator doesn't really share with you that they actually have relationships with say an Oracle, with an SAP, with a whatever. And so it just depends which which uh, partner comes in and actually shares. Uh, their vision of what you should be selecting, and so, um, and if you if you walked into um, or talked to a different partner within that same organisation, he might give you a completely different story. So, it, it's about breaking down that bias that that plenty many have when they actually are associated to a particular vendor or, or many vendors, and so, um, so that independence really does help because the questions that um, an independent might ask are. Uh, answers that a vendor usually shudders in answering because they're the ones that that really unpack what what they're looking for. Right. Now, what about when it comes time to go implement a new technology? Let's say you find the right solution for you, and you're, now you're ready to go go implement and make that change to your to your business. What what are some of the challenges and pitfalls you've seen organizations struggle with when they're they're trying to deploy these sorts of technologies? Well, EAM is is a, a bit more of a challenge than ERP in the sense that it touches every area of the business. So, you know, it will change what you're doing in finance. It will change what you're doing in HR. It will change what you're doing in supply chain. And so it's about managing all of those complexities that, that it adds in the sense that um, you've got, um, you know, all of these areas being touched, processes are being changed, information uh uh, requirements are even greater and so um so really you, what you need to be able to do is understand your phase of what you're actually delivering so you need to know as you go from phase to phase you've actually completed all of what you intended to do in the first phase say discovery phase and then as you as you roll through that life cycle of of the project that you've actually completed and you understand where you're at each time because if every, every bit you miss in each of the earlier stages becomes a real challenge when you try and uh, go live and deploy. So, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I, 
it's really interesting to hear you talk about how, and I had forgotten this in my past experience with EAM, that it, there really is a really broad uh, impact to an organization. Even if you're just implementing EAM, it doesn't mean that you're not going to impact other parts of the organization that maybe aren't directly using the solution. So it sounds like in terms of uh, other upstream and downstream processes, it sounds like those people and those processes will be impacted even if they're not direct users of the technology. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly right. And it's it's one of those things because, uh, and also putting EAM in, it's about looking at the driver. So if I'm managing an asset, I want to look at the life cycle cost of an asset, whereas um, but that won't actually align my financials with my financials as such. And so uh, there's always that bit of a difference between what finance are looking as an objective and what uh, the assets uh, managers are looking at as an objective. And so there's a bit of tension always when it comes to who should who should drive what the cost of uh, chart of accounts looks like and the cost allocation methodologies and those sort of things that that are the probably the integration point for um, EAM and ERP. Yeah, no, that's that's sound advice. I appreciate your your feedback on this, and uh, we're about out of time. But I want to thank you, Wayne, for being here today. This was a great discussion and uh, pretty eye opening and interesting to hear about a technology that's not always uh, top of mind when when companies think about their digital transformations, but it can have a huge impact. It sounds like on a lot of different organizations. So, so thank you for being here today. No, my pleasure, and it's uh, it's good to be able to talk about the subject that's dear to my heart. So, yeah, that always makes it makes it fun. Yes, well, that's right. Well, thank you, Wayne. I've included uh, both yours and my contact information in the description field uh, for this podcast or in the information field. So be sure to reach out if you've got questions about EAM, feel free to reach out to Wayne. Or if you're in Asia Pacific and you're part of a digital transformation in general, feel free to reach out to Wayne. Or if, if not, you can reach out to me as well if it's outside of uh, Asia Pacific. So, all right. Thanks very much for being on the show, Wayne. I've got some additional thoughts and questions I want to talk to you about, Parisa, uh, related to enterprise asset management now that we have a better understanding of what it is. But first, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, your source for all things digital and business transformation, especially if you're looking for that from a technology agnostic perspective. Um, so we had we just had this uh, interview with Wayne where we talked about enterprise asset management. Um, you had mentioned that you were relatively green when it came to that concept. I didn't have a lot of experience or exposure to it. What are some of your thoughts or questions after hearing Wayne's discussion with me there? Yeah, well, it sounds like a very beneficial software that organizations could, you know, adopt, and it would help them dial in on those data points even further to help them with their business decisions. But I guess I kind of want to talk about the avatar, if you will, of a company that would 
benefit the most from this. So he mentioned it's mostly in the mining, oil and gas, you know, water utilities, shipping ports, airports, hospitals that use these um, these types of software. But what like within that? So, I mean, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking what assets specifically like it, what are you managing? So if, if it's an airport or say you're Southwest Airlines or United Airlines, you know, is it can you use it to manage your fleet? because your airplanes are an asset and then are you managing, you know, the maintenance, et cetera, of each airplane? Is that an avatar United or what, what type of organization would benefit the most from an EAM? So my answer to that would be yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. No, <laughs> no, but more specifically, I'd, I'd say, yeah, those examples you gave, like the air airplanes are a good one. That's a big, massive asset that it, you know, obviously very capital intensive and there's a lot of money and efficiency gains to be had from managing those assets. Well, if you don't manage them well and you have to replace them, that's, you know, that's a, a big challenge. Um, you know, in the utilities industry, which I had a number of years where I spent in the utilities industry, I know a big thing for them was like, um, for power plants, you had substations, you have even, uh, I'm looking out the window here. We don't have them anymore. So I don't know why I'm looking out the window, but there used to be the, uh, above ground uh, poles with all the wires that, you know, would deliver your power. Now, most of that's underground, but there's still assets that's underground. And you have to be able to track and predict where those assets are, what inventory has been allocated to those assets, um, the usage of the assets. And then there's sort of that predictive piece of it that Wayne was talking about, which is predicting based on usage and other factors, predicting when we think we need to do some sort of maintenance. And it's a, you know, it's a constant balancing act because utilities and other organizations that are very capital intensive, on one hand, they want to optimize their maintenance dollars, but on the other hand, they don't want to optimize it so much or reduce it so much that they end up creating the need for more capital investments and replacements of those assets later on. So it's a, it's a tough balancing act. And um, I know in the utility industry, when I was in that for a while, they, they had a term called sweating the assets. I think I may have mentioned it in the, the interview with Wayne but they would sweat the assets, which means you try to get as much mileage out of those assets as you possibly can before you have to replace them. And obviously, you know, you, you, you don't do it to the point where you, you don't ideally want to get to the point where you reach complete failure, but you get to the point where you've gotten as much as you can possibly get out of it. And then it's time to replace it. So really think of it as anything that any, any sort of capital, anything that's capital intensive from a physical perspective. So you could be capital intensive with a lot of cash and money, but that's obviously not what we're talking about. We're talking about physical assets. So um, yeah, hospitals, um, anything that involves infrastructure, water plants, um, even manufacturing companies, a, a standard average manufacturing company that has a lot of uh, equipment out on the shop floor, you know, that's a lot of money for those organizations and they have to figure out how they're going to maintain that stuff and optimize it. So um, it, it's pretty, in, it's pretty interesting how many different organizations asset management applies to. Or, or could help. Right. And it's, it's also interesting to just see the, like the differences between ERP um, and EAM. I'm giving it its own acronym, but <laughs> I mean, can you customize it the same way that you would customize an ERP system? You know, could you go back, could you go into it and, you know, add some configurations that would be more suited to your organization? Is it the same type of type of deal? Yes. Yeah, so there's, there's certain business rules that you would do. I wouldn't say it's necessarily customization, but it's more the, 
parameters you put in place for different assets and different criteria and parameters for those assets. But that's more of just a sort of a general usage of the software, but it's a way to configure or tailor the, the solution for your specific um, types of assets and what you're trying to accomplish with the assets. Um, and you can customize um, in a lot of the same way that you can with ERP systems. You can change the code, you can write custom reports, you can you know, do all that stuff. In fact, many of the ERP providers are providing enterprise asset management solutions, and then there's also standalone EAM providers as well. Got it. I mean, would a standalone EAM be as beneficial or because it sounds like it would be an added layer to your existing efforts and your existing ERP system. But would a standalone EAM provide the same value as it would um, if it were married with another ERP that you're running off of? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, it can provide an equivalent amount of value, especially as it relates to call it the maintenance organization, the maintenance and repair organization within any sort of company that's that's managing assets. But where ERP might have a leg up or at the very least where EAM that's integrated to something else like an ERP uh, has an advantage is outside the world of EAM. So for example, uh, when you think about the touch points that our enterprise asset management has with financials, um, that's a big part of it. So you want to track... Um, you know, a depreciation, for example, you want to track labor and materials to specific assets. So you can do different types of costing models and whatnot. So there's a financial side of it and a reporting side of it that uh, can benefit from a broader ERP system, or at the very least an EAN system that is tied to or integrated with an ERP or financial system or whatever the case may be. So I think that's a big part of it too, is just looking at not just the immediate needs of enterprise asset management users, but other people in the organization that have a secondary um, benefit from using it. Right. And it sounds like all the big players in the ERP space, like Oracle, Microsoft Dynamics, they also offer an extension or like an additional bolt-on module that would fill the EAM need too. Yeah. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder, and there's best of breed that Wayne was talking about. You could do a best of breed EAM, which took me to the question of this might be a little bit different, but is craft at its core somewhat of an EAM? <laughs> Would you say? Um, I'd, I'd say not really. I mean, because they're, they're more focused on the overall touch points and processes and vendors and players within a supply chain they're not so much focused on the the physical assets themselves although you know physical assets can have an impact on on uh, on your supply chain for example if you have a if you own your own fleet of trucks and one of them breaks down that obviously affects your supply chain so um, it's actually a good question, though. Now, now that now that you asked that, I, I wish I would have. I wish you would have asked me that before the interview with Amy, because then I could ask her. <laughs> you know, how does enterprise asset management potentially affect, or how could you anticipate how asset management might affect, undermine, or support your your overall supply chain? And I don't know if her technology or if there are technologies that would help specifically for that reason. But it's a good point that it is all it is all very much interrelated. Interesting. Yeah, it makes sense because, I mean, both both scenarios, it seems like it's just taking that extra set, step and that deeper dive into getting more data so that you can manage your organization more appropriately and make mm -hmm. better decisions, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah.
I mean, also too, I mean, we've talked about, you know, our top 10 ERP systems um, and a lot of these big players like Oracle, Microsoft Dynamics, et cetera, are on there. So I imagine they would also have, you know, trusty EAM systems as well. Um, I was curious, I don't know why you would do this, but do you have the flexibility of if you have your ERP system, say, say you have Microsoft Dynamics, and you decided you wanted an Oracle enterprise asset management system. Can you do that? Or is that frowned upon? <laughs> you can do whatever you want. I mean, it's your organization and you, you know, your, uh, your assets and your supply chain and business that you're trying to manage. I think, you know, software vendors are probably tell you, no, 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 don't do that. Just use our product for everything because then you've got one system, one single source of truth, all that stuff. That may be a benefit that's outweighs the cost of, um, uh, associated with that, but you also have to look at, you know, what, if, if there's a better EAM provider out there, then, and you have a better solution other than that EAM provider for your ERP or your back office systems, then that's, that's a viable option. You just have to recognize that now you might've found a better fit overall, but now you've got to deal with the technical, um, complication and complexity of trying to tie those systems together. But that's not the end of the world. That's not a terrible thing. That just means you've shifted the risk and that might make the most sense for you. Would it just be on the integration points that you would you would configure it to to work together? Is that where it ties in? Yeah. So you'd have the integration, you'd have to work out, you'd have to work out where where their single source of truth is for the data. So when you've got data flowing back and forth, for example, like with the um, either item master or asset master data. Um, is that going to reside in EAM or is that going to reside over in your ERP system? And how are you going to manage that and ensure that they stay in sync? So again, that's not a showstopper. It's not something that should just be a problem that you can't overcome. It's just a additional risk and cost that you've got to consider against the risk and cost of implementing one single system. And the cost and risk of implementing one single system is that now you've got one system that inevitably is not going to be everything to everyone within your organization. So you're losing some of the functionality most likely that you might want in a perfect world. So, you know, again, it's just which, which risk sounds better to you and which cost benefit scenario sounds better to you. Right. Pros and cons to everything. There's trade-offs to everything. So it's deciding what's right. You guys always mention the single source of truth for, for our listeners who are green, like yours truly, what is the single <laughs> source of truth? So it, what that refers to is when you have um, when you have two systems that are integrated, and if they both if if they have data sets in both of them and they show different results, then then there's a conflict, and you have to know well which data is is correct, and you don't want to have to deal with that. You don't want some sort of integration problem or data management problem to create a situation where the two systems don't match up. So one system shows an inventory of A, the other system shows an inventory of B because they're not, there is no single source of truth and there's no integration uh, between the two systems that would keep that data in sync. So a single source of truth would be, you know, I go to one system and no matter what I look up in that system, I know that's the real truth or the real story of what's going on. Got it. Okay. That sounds important. <laughs> that important. can totally throw off your entire supply chain if you don't have a single source of truth and don't know yeah. how much inventory you have. For sure. Absolutely. Hmm. Yep. It's very true. Interesting stuff, I gotta say. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, good stuff. Well, you know, we covered a lot of ground here today between supply chain management, asset management. I mean, that's that's some pretty meaty stuff. So, um, 
not your traditional ERP or financial system type of discussion, but hopefully it's been helpful to the audience here. I think most organizations have a need for supply chain management at the very least, and uh, many of them also have the need for asset management as well. So appreciate our guests that were here today. And uh, thank you, Parisa, for another good episode and uh, appreciate your your help and uh, co-hosting as always. Of course, always learning new things here. I love hearing all the conversations that we have with the experts that join us on the show. And it's always a pleasure to pick your brain too. So thank you. Absolutely. And thank you all for listening. We look forward to seeing you next Wednesday and we'll see you on the next episode of Transformation Ground Control. Have a great week in the meantime. Take care.